Two years ago in New York, Daniil Medvedev came oh so close, and this year he is the man. And in doing so, he has denied Novak Djokovic history. He's denied him the calendar year Grand Slam, and he has denied him a 21st major. Daniil Medvedev, your 2021 U.S. Open champion. I'm Brian Clark. Welcome to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Happy to be joined by the man who I sat next to during that final. You might have listened to it. It's former pro Leif Shiras. Leif how did Daniil Medvedev just win this <laughs> It was such an amazing effort by the Russian. I, what was important for him was the success he had in the matches leading up to it. He got through a lot of matches easily. He came into a lot of energy and reserve, and then he executed the game plan. He served well, served big, got a lot of free points, and then played very solid tennis from the back, something that he does like Novak Djokovic. And Djokovic just didn't have the energy to keep up with the Russian. You wondered uh, watching Medvedev and you saw the importance of the insurance break when he was serving for the match in the third set. He got broken for the first time in the match, but that second break helped him get over the line as he served it out. But when you think about breaks of serve, it's Djokovic's inability to break serve that really hurt him. And I can't stop thinking about the second game of the second set after Medvedev won the first set. Djokovic had Medvedev love 40. Medvedev hits four first serves hold serve from there, that felt like the turning point because we saw Djokovic absolutely destroy his racket after that. Yeah, I mean, an emotional outburst like that can oftentimes give you some energy. But I think for Novak, it was a little bit toxic. It got into a system. He didn't play well after that. And I think that was also energy sapping. You know, there are a lot of things went wrong for him. It began to spiral downwards for him after that. And I think at the end of the day, he just played too many long matches leading up to this one where Danell just, you know, got through his matches pretty comfortably. So Novak was a little bit tired and he wasn't able to play his best tennis and Medvedev played a very high level today. Daniil Medvedev, the U.S. Open champion. Just how good is he? <laughs> I think he's a great player. He plays a little bit like Novak, plays a little bit like Andy Murray from the back of the court. Lots of beautiful drives off the back end, but also possessing a booming serve. You know, that's something that maybe the elite three don't have. And he has the ability to get free points. When he's on with his serve, he can get through his games easily, put pressure on your serve, and he returns very well. So he gets a lot of balls back into play, and he backs it up with error-free play from the baseline. So this is a guy who is very tough to beat. He invests physically in the match, so he, he'll match you in that regard like he did Novak. So he's got a lot of skill. He's going to be around for a while, and we, we thought he might be the next guy to win a major. Now we feel like he might be the next guy to be number one. Yeah, he certainly sent a, a clear statement of intent today. When you look at what happened to Djokovic in this match, we talked about maybe that turning point game early in the second set. Is the biggest thing that hurt him just simply what had gone on in the 13 days prior where he had spent five more hours on court than Medvedev to get to the final? Yeah, I think that was a big part of it. I think he played, what, four matches or three hours, a little bit more, a little bit less, but four matches that really were, you know, lung busters and leg busters, and his legs just didn't have any energy in them today. So I do feel that was a big factor, and then Medvedev playing so well. But, uh, yeah, and I also think the whole... I don't know, the pressure, the psychological pressure of trying to pull off the Grand Slam. I think there was a lot at play there that may have worked on him in ways we don't even know. So um, a lot of pressure that he wasn't able to handle today. It was somewhat odd because when he walked out from the tunnel for the match, he had a smile on his face. He looked like the most calm guy in the stadium. But then once we saw things go a little bit astray, 
in that second set, maybe just an indicator of how you, you can't tell what somebody's thinking or what they're going through at such a moment with so much pressure on the yeah. line. Pressure and fatigue, if those two factors are playing on you, it can affect your execution. It can affect your positive outlook. It can affect your strategy. He was serving in volleying. He was coming in behind his serve, looking to end points quickly. So he was a little bit out of character in how he executed his game plan. So the fact that he was trying to conserve it made you feel that he wasn't 100%. And Medvedev took full advantage of that. The Russian played great. The other surprise we saw from Djokovic when he finally did get that break from Medvedev, this was a very pro-Djokovic crowd in Ash Stadium today. And this was Medvedev about to serve for the championship, which he did at 5-4. Djokovic, during the changeover, crying into his towel. He was, you could still, he, he was, had the red eyes when he went back on court. And during that trophy ceremony where he's emotional and he said, you give me so much joy and how happy he is, Djokovic is a pretty spiritual guy. He's been open about that part of his journey. What were your impressions from seeing that? You know, it, emotions can be very complex in that situation. Yes, he wanted to achieve this incredible milestone. That, and the fact that he didn't do it, yet he got recognition from the crowd, a crowd that had never really embraced him in that way before. I think he was trying to find something positive in it all. And perhaps that was it. You know, in, in failing to reach his goal, he reached perhaps another milestone that he's uh, being accepted by the, the audience in tennis. And it was something pretty special. So uh, I felt very bad for him and that he was having to endure such an emotional outburst. But um, and it was obviously very meaningful for him. And you could hear Daniil Medvedev say during, as he accepted the champion's trophy, some really gracious words towards Novak saying, I think, and I've never said this in public, that you're the greatest <laughs> of all time. So that's this nebulous thing you hear talked about. Who's yeah. the GOAT? Who's the greatest of all time? And you and I think that can be a waste of time to have that conversation. Right. If you're Djokovic, though, does this mean anything that Djokovic did not complete the Grand Slam? Or maybe does this spur... Federer and Nadal in their recoveries to come back, try to give it another go now that they remain tied heading into 2022. Yeah, I, I don't think it affects our interpretation of that argument. I, th I think Novak had a what, 27 and one record in the majors. If anything, it might strengthen the fact that he's close to doing things that are rarely ever done in our game. Each of these guys has done great things that the others haven't. So Novak continues to push himself to surpass some of the players who have driven him. I mean, if it wasn't for Roger Rafa, Novak wouldn't be where he is. He's going to come back next year trying to surpass his great rivals. And maybe Roger and Rafa will have a reason now to stick around, that they're still at 20 going into the next season. I think it's uh, possibly a situation where we could have the big three all around for next season. But the best here in New York, Daniil Medvedev. Very happy third anniversary as we, uh, Medvedev just continued to charm this crowd at Ash Stadium, a crowd he really won over two years ago when he got so close against Rafa Nadal, his third major final. This is the one where he clicked, bringing an end to, Leaf, you and I were saying as we wrap up here, maybe the best open we can remember. Yeah, it was great. I, you know, I want to say that there was a little bit of recency bias because we haven't had an open with fans like this in two years. And to have the crowds driving all the players to bigger and better things, it was very special. The players responded by playing some of their best tennis ever. And uh, it was a brilliant fortnight. Thanks to Daniil Medvedev, Novak Djokovic, and Emma Raducanu, the qualifier who did not drop a set in qualifying in her run to the main draw, just part of what made a fantastic U.S. Open. 
We'll hear a little bit more about Emma later, but right now we're going to head back and take a look at the rest of the second week of this tournament. And to do that, I'll go outside of Arthur Ashe Stadium. I'm going to chat with our fellow commentator, Mike Cation. Thanks, Leaf. They say it's the greatest era of tennis ever seen. Federer stretches, makes it! The bar has been raised to new heights. Djokovic should be able to smash it away. He does! And for those looking up, reaching the summit is going to take something special. Oh, wow! The climb will be tough. But the view will be worth it. The stage is set. The world is waiting. Extraordinary! Find the greatness within every player, every week, at every tournament at atptour.com. We're back outside of Arthur Ashe Stadium and back here on the ATP Tennis Radio podcast. It is Mike Cation rejoining us. I'm Brian Clark. Mike, we wanted to have you talk about what we've seen over the last two weeks of this tournament. It was great to have you last week. You're going to pop up a few times in this because mm. a player that you spoke with a few weeks back had a pretty impressive U.S. Open. So we're going to hear that interview. That's called a tease in the business. That'll be coming up in a moment. But let's talk about a semifinal debutante at a major and that's Felix Auger-Aliassime, because I think my new rallying cry about Felix this summer is the fact that he's just 21 years old, and he just turned 21 years old a little more than a month ago as you and I sit here. It feels like, okay, he didn't play his best against Medvedev. The way he lost that second set really hurt him moving forward, but he got to his first major semifinal right after he got to his first major quarterfinal. I have a hard time taking away anything but good vibes about Felix from this tournament. Yeah, it's an interesting situation, isn't it? He continues to progress, but because of the fact that we saw him at such a young age do so many incredible things, winning a challenger at such a young age and having this ATP success at such a young age, we expect more. He's progressing at a pretty normal pace in, in the grand scheme of things. The problem is he is 0 for 8 in his ATP finals. He hasn't had that, AT, uh, that Grand Slam final yet. So I think we've had this expectation of, yes, he's going to be a guy who wins several majors along the way, but he hasn't gotten there yet, nor has he gotten to a final. It's a really in interesting juxtaposition. So I think you're right. He continues to progress. And on top of it, he is saying the right things. He knows that there are steps. He knows that he had the big breakthrough and then there's a little bit of a step back because everybody makes adjustments to him and then there's that next step after that he has to make more adjustments. He's doing the right things, getting Tony Nadal in his camp and starting to make that progression and realizing what he's going to need to do to get to that next level. But yeah, we're just a little bit impatient as fans, as media, and I, I think you're exactly right. He's moving along, maybe just not at the rate we expected when he was 16 years old. And I think the other semifinalist could be an illustrative example of that in Sasha Zverev. And we know the Olympic gold medal, the Cincinnati title, the, the winning streak he had that was stopped in that five-set dramatic match, a match you called when he lost to Novak Djokovic on Friday night in the semifinals. Zverev could be a good example where he had that early success at the Masters level, started racking up titles, and then there was that... You don't call it stagnation, but the breakthrough took a while. He got yes. to his first major final here last year. He added some muscle. And are there parallels between these two? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think the thing that we'll need to see, though, from Felix, if you're looking at that right, he needs to start winning some 250s. I think there's just no way around that. He's certainly put himself in position time after time. It's going to be one of these moments, Brian, I feel very confident that once he gets one and just, again, associates that idea, the positivity of winning, 
and it's not pressure anymore, I think you're going to see him reel off several 250s and then a 500 or maybe even a Master Series is the next jump. I mean, he is very, very close to making that next breakthrough. And I think Zverev's a good point. He's obviously done so incredibly well and has winning under his belt, has trophies. That makes a big, big difference to continuing that progression. Do you think this tournament erased the scar tissue for Zverev from the final here last year? Or does that not go away until he wins this tournament or a major? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I, I don't know that I have an answer because I, I think in the f- fifth set against Djokovic, we saw the nerves pop in there. All of a sudden, he threw in a couple of, I think it was 78 was the slowest second serve. And I was calling the match with Sophie Amiak, and both of us just turned and looked at each other and immediately had flashbacks to a year ago. So I don't know the answer to that. I, th- I think so. But that fifth set, early in that fifth set, made me extremely concerned about what it's going to take if he's playing Novak. If he's playing, I don't know, if he's playing Felix in a final, I think he's fine. I think playing Novak, maybe even playing Rafa or Roger if they make it back to a final, maybe some of those demons pop back up. That's been the million-dollar question or maybe the $2 million-plus question for these younger guys, the next gen, and as they've gotten older when they come up against the big three in these major finals. I think back to uh, Tiger Woods. I think I made this comparison to you at some point over the last couple of weeks. Tiger Woods back in 02, 03, right? It was everybody else on the PGA Tour and Tiger Woods. But once there was kind of just that dent in the armor and one person saw that they could beat Novak in a final or Roger or Rafa in a final, one of the next gen, I think there's just going to be a flood of them. I think we've seen that already in this sport with Serena Williams. Yes, 100%. I think the, the younger generation that came up uh, there's just that different the auras maybe not quite as invincible as it was it's not the Sharapova generation but this you know Osaka generation they take the court with a different mindset against Williams I think we've seen it in tennis as we uh, peek over at the women's side we will touch of course we know we're the ATP here but on Emma Raducanu's incredible run because that certainly merits discussion so does the quarterfinal debut at a major for Lloyd Harris, who we heard on the podcast last week. Impressive run through the draw. Got through to his first major quarterfinal. Nothing but progress there. And something we heard in your interview with him from a few weeks back, uh, Mike Cation, I was telling a few people about this with Lloyd. It just seems like opportunity is the magic word and how it was harder in South Africa to have those opportunities. Well, he's made the most of the opportunities this summer. And now here he is in a major quarterfinal. Yeah, when you don't have the opportunity to get into some challengers by virtue of a wild card when you are 18, 19, I mean, those are kind of free opportunities, free points, essentially. That opportunity to sneak into a challenger, reach a quarterfinal, pick up 15 points. Lloyd didn't have that opportunity. Same for a guy like Darian King from Barbados. Some of these areas where they don't have challengers don't have ATP events. Um, Lloyd has had to do it the hard way. He has continued working with his coach and Anthony Harris. He has also brought in Xavier Melise into his team. On top of it, the fact that he's doing so much work in South Africa, getting uh, Tennis South Africa engaged with him as well. I think there's just more of that interest locally back home. It's also brought in now, they're going to have some more challengers at the back end of 2021 Um, I think that matters and yeah he's going to be doing it the hard way 
but look, he's really, really close. He's always had the frame. I think it's been a mindset issue for him as well in terms of understanding that he belongs at this highest level. And he now understands that he's right there. He can beat or play with anyone in the world. And I don't know that he's going to be a world number one down the road, but I do think he's going to be winning several ATP titles and have opportunities to run deep in slams every single year. I will ask you almost the same question in terms of sustainability mm -hmm. about another quarterfinal debutant here in Botic van de Sanschelp. Is this a Cinderella run coming through qualifying, getting to a major quarterfinal, or can we expect him to maybe not consistently, but to break through to the second weeks of majors? I'm going to say no. I look at this draw that he had. I mean, it, it's about as ideal as you could get for a qualifier. I mean, your seed is Casper Ruud, who's obviously, Casper's had an incredible summer, right? So I'm going to take nothing away from Casper, but he's played a ton of matches, and Bodic has this opportunity to play him in the second round. Then gets Facundo Bagnus, who is a clay quarter who had, what, one hard court win before this week. Um, Diego Schwartzman, this is not his preferred surface too fast. I tend to think this is one of those one tournament one-offs. However, you just don't know what confidence can do for you. Now, he's going to give himself with this run into the quarterfinals the amount of points. He's got a full year to back this up. If he learns and understands to play with confidence week in, week out, maximizes where he plays and when in terms of finding the correct surfaces for him, finding the correct draws and fields for him, that can be huge. But I think it's going to be up to him and his team to be very smart about it. Way too often you see players who have this breakthrough one and then say, I'm going to play every single event that I possibly can. That's not the way to do it. Maximize your potential by making sure you're in the right types of tournaments for you and then see if you can sustain 70 plus in terms of the rankings. As we talk about planning the future, somebody who certainly arrived here at this tournament and announced himself, Carlos Alcaraz. It was unfortunate he had to retire in that match against Felix in his first major quarterfinal. But I think we, we got a glimpse of Alcaraz. Now, how does he take the burst from there? As we talked a few minutes ago about Felix and about Zverev a few years back, where there's the initial breakthrough. Okay, Alcaraz not quite at the level they've achieved yet, but how does he get through and keep this going once, of course, he heals up and recovers from his injury? Yeah, I'm not as concerned about Carlos quite yet, just because the fact he is still young, still pretty new. He has a good team around him as well. They're going to take care of his health. I don't know if we'll see him again for the rest of the year. I don't know that there's necessarily the need for him to rush back this year. I think it's much smarter to get him ready for the Australian Open in 2022 and then more specifically for the French coming up next spring. That being said, I think he is absolutely going to be there week in, week out. You have to think with Carlos Alcaraz, you get him prepared for three or four years from now so that he is maximizing who he is as a tennis player at 22, 23, 24. His team around him said the other day, um, I, I can't remember who said the quote was, I don't know if it's low tennis IQ or if he is just that fearless yet. And that's because he's 18. We don't know what it is. Let's let him grow, progress at a normal rate here, but I think he's going to be fine in two or three years. Maybe just don't put those expectations on him to win slams within the next couple of years, but he'll get there eventually. And if you flash forward, he'd be about the age Matteo Berrettini is now, where Berrettini uh, 
really closed out an, an impressive summer. Of course, the Wimbledon final is first major final, quarterfinals here, but had the misfortune on both occasions of running into Novak Djokovic. Is that just bad luck, or is there more growth we're waiting for from Berrettini? Yeah, that's a great question, because I called that match, and Berrettini, as you mentioned, won the first set 7-5. I was doing the match with Sophie Amiak, and we both looked at each other right after that first set, and we said, that's all he's got. And sure enough, it was two, two, and three from there on out. And I don't know if he has that next leap. I, I really don't know if he has that next leap because I, I, I think we've seen over the last couple of years, obviously, and Novak is the gold standards. He's the peak. And so nobody's been able to do it in five sets, right? I mean, that's been the issue. With Mateo, I feel like he is maximizing what he does with that serve and with the forehand. Can he add a little bit more on the backhand so that he's not at such a deficit on that wing? And it is, it's not that it's a bad side. It's just that he can't compete at that next peak level. There's a jump available for him. I just don't know if he can take it or if he's going to be surpassed. I mean, if I had to pick one between Matteo Berrettini, his age, versus Carlos Alcaraz, I take Alcaraz. The future is always more exciting it, maybe it than is. the present in some cases you kind of yeah when you when you have a, a track record of somebody two or three years and you just say i just don't know if that guy has that next level after he's been out there for several years alcaraz i feel he has several spots to jump brian clark here with mike cation on the atp tennis radio podcast we are both sitting it's quite a uh, a visual just to paint the picture side by side <laughs> looks like we're on an uncomfortable date it's because of the wind and hopefully we're doing an <laughs> adequate job of shielding our microphones from the wind uh we talked about weather last week and of course that serious storm that swept through here the middle of the first week this tennis though at this tournament men's women's day one to day 14 hard pressed to think of a better major certainly a better u.s open on the men's side, yes, Djokovic came in here as the alpha dog, but we talked so much coming in, it's going to be not the same without Nadal and Federer here, and it's not the same. But does their absence almost make it better because it opens things up a little bit more? How much of the excitement we've seen do you attribute to those factors? I think you're seeing a lot of players realizing more and more as we go along that those two players, specifically in Rafa and Roger, with them out of the draw, that means there's going to be one half of the draw every single slam now where it's wide open. That there's not that alpha dog outside of Novak right now. There's not that big alpha dog where somebody who is ranked 50 in the world says, I probably can't win on that day. So yeah, you have a lot of players now who believe they can run deep every single major. So I think you're going to have those performances elevated. I, I think having the big three and the big four when, when Andy has been healthy as well, I mean, you just kind of had that situation where guys would say, yeah, I have that ability to go into the second week. Now they're thinking about, I have the ability to get into the second weekend more and more. And there's a larger chunk of players that believe that. And I think it has definitely elevated the tennis here this week. And on top of it, Listen, this is New York. The crowds are something else here as well. So I think that has brought something new to the table as well, especially compared to last year when it was so quiet and so empty. So I think this has been such a unique tournament. It's not been just the men's side. The women's side obviously has been unbelievable as well. The stories, it's been so much fun these last two weeks to cover. I would argue, just for a quick thought on the women's, we might see that again. might take 50 years. We could see it again. I don't think we will ever see a player 
come through qualifying, come through the main draw on their debut, and win the title at a major without the loss of a set like I, we saw yeah. Emma Raducanu. I don't think we'll ever see that again. I can't imagine it. 20 sets in 20 a row? I mean, that's, it's remarkable, and I, I know it's been talked about the fact that she's the first person ever to get 2,040 points right. by getting qualifying points on top of a Grand Slam. She will lose points no matter what happens when she comes back next year. It's, it is a phenomenal story. Uh, I, I saw on, on you know, social media today her, her debut speaking in Mandarin as well. I, I mean, she is such a marketable athlete. On top of it, her incredible talent, how fearless she was. Same for Layla Fernandez, so fearless. The one thing, and I'm going to give credit again to my partner, Sophie Amiak. We had discussions about this on air several times. We have seen, obviously, the idea of mental health being a real question. We take it, and you know, thinking back to Carlos Alcarez as well, we have a tendency to push too hard. And I'm hopeful uh, that we make sure we take care of, specifically Leila Fernandez and Emma Raducanu, just make sure that their mental health is taken care of as well as we want to make sure that with them being such brave, fearless young women, we want to make sure that they're a great example for young women like my daughter, who's seven years old. I thought about that while I was broadcasting last night. At the same time, we want to make sure they're taken care of and we give them all the resources that we possibly can to move on in a very happy and healthy way. Saturday was just a great day for British tennis here because we had Alfie Hewitt, Gordon Reed complete the Grand Slam, winning all four major championships in the wheelchair doubles. And we also had Joe Salisbury making it a double here, a double-double, if you will. He won the men's doubles on Friday with Rajiv Ram of the United States. And then he teamed up with Desiree Kravchek, with whom he won the French Open back in the spring, got to the Wimbledon final with Harriet Dart, lost to Kravchek and Neil Skupski. But then they won the title here, so that is back-to-back -back doubles titles at the same tournament. First time it's been done here since Bob Bryan did it Remarkable. in 2010. And it was really impressive, Mike, that he survived the Mike Cation curse <laughs> because you sat down with him uh, in Cincinnati? Yeah. yeah. Cincinnati a few weeks ago, and you discussed all the attention he was getting at that time as he was on the ascendancy. Uh, he's somebody who's used to flying under the radar, but those days might be over after the two titles here in New York. Let's take a listen to your chat with Joe Salisbury. That's just how I prefer it, really. I don't, I don't like to sort of go out and shout about things, and I don't particularly like to be sort of in the in the spotlight or trying to, yeah, get get too much attention. I'd rather just focus on my tennis and and go about it that way. It's obviously such an interesting thing because, I mean, you get you have the opportunity for so many endorsement opportunities, money. Even though you've done incredibly well over the last couple of years, it's always a little bit more complex on the double side. Do you feel like you've lost any sponsorship opportunities because of how maybe quiet you are? Possibly. I mean, obviously, there's there's not as many opportunities on on the double side. It doesn't get as much attention, so it's kind of easier to just to yeah go under the radar. Um, I mean, obviously, if I had a lot more sort of presence on social media, then then maybe I would have more opportunities for things, but I don't. I don't particularly like to to do too much of that. I mean, I'm on Instagram a bit, use it a little bit, but not not too much, and don't really don't really do Twitter much. So, uh, yeah, I'd rather just um, yeah focus on the tennis and yeah don't worry about that too much. I wanted to ask you a little bit about mindfulness because I know that's something that's pretty important to you. And obviously there's a lot of attention on anxiety right now in, in the sporting world. 
And I know you've been reading a lot of books on the topic of mindfulness and practicing it as well. And, and I'm wondering how that developed for you and, and how you're able to harness that on a tennis court. Yeah, I think it's definitely something that is very important. I think it's still, even though it's becoming a lot more kind of mainstream and a lot more, I think a lot more people put more focus on it, I think it's still a bit underrated considering how much of an impact it does have on, on people's games. Like you look at all the things down to like every calorie that you're eating and trying to plan everything out so you can get your best performance. But some people don't do much mental work, which can actually have the biggest performance on, or the biggest impact on, on your performance on court. So I've always kind of felt that it was a big thing and I didn't want to kind of lose out on any matches or any even any games or points in matches because I wasn't in a good mental state. And obviously in order to do that you have to you have to practice it, you have to work on it, improve it. Nobody's has perfect sort of mental skills on court. So um, it's actually one of my former coaches um, that kind of introduced me to that side of it. It was actually gave me the book The Power of Now um, which is yes been had a massive impact on me and kind of introduced me to kind of mindfulness and meditation and and yes yeah, I still meditate every day now um, and yeah I've had psychologists on and off the last several years um, but it's always something that I felt is yeah really important and I've tried to yeah, improve it as much as I can. I think I've come a long way in, in the last sort of 10 years, um, but it's always something that can that can keep improving. How does it manifest itself on court? In, in big moments, especially, uh, you know, you're playing in a slam final. Yeah, I think for me, the biggest improvement I've seen is how I can come back from being in a very negative state. So we're either getting very... I guess nervous or anxious or angry especially with the anger um, I think in the past when I've kind of gone down that road and gone into that state I found it very difficult to come out of it and get back to a, to a good state and being in a good place mentally on court um, and I think the biggest thing is kind of how much that's improved Part, partly not going into those negative states as much but also being able to come out of them a lot quicker if I do um, and that's something that I really really struggled with often sometimes it would take me a set or more to actually recover from it I I know that everyone's practice is private um, but can you can you share with the listeners uh, is it a is it a breathing technique is it a mantra style for meditation for you on the court that allows you to settle and then move past it it's a little bit of yeah, combination of things. I mean, I do my meditation, which is obviously a lot about kind of trying to clear the mind and breathing. Um, I kind of do some kind of mental preparation stuff before I go on court, so almost preparing for for things that could go wrong or things that could put me in a bad state, and so it you kind of it doesn't take you by surprise or you don't. Um, yeah, you're almost expecting it, so it's it's not as, as bad as if it does happen. Um, and, and then it's just trying to, if it does happen on court, it's just trying to sort of be aware of those emotions um, and to kind of think as, as logically as possible to try and sort of get myself out of it. And yeah, sometimes it doesn't work, but, um, and I'd always be sort of open to, to new things and looking for new ways to, to 
improve it and to get better at it. But um, yeah, that's kind of how I try and go about it at the moment. Think, thinking logically on a tennis court is a very interesting way of thinking about things there, Joe. It's, it doesn't happen too often. It's tough. It's, <laughs> it's sometimes very difficult to do that. Um, Rajiv Ram, um, I've known him for 20 years now. His path is, uh, you know, top junior when he was eight, 17, 18 here in the States, a two-time ATP singles champion as well. How did you guys hook up? Um, yeah, so it was in 2000, end of 2018. Neither of us had a, had a set partner. We'd both been playing with some different people throughout the year. And obviously the, at the end of the year, most people try and set up their, their partner for the next year. Um, and yeah, I was asking around a few people and he was kind of top of my list that, that I had. And he, uh, yeah, kept me waiting a bit. I think I was actually second on his list for, for people who he wanted to play with. Who was first, uh, do you know? I think it was Marcel Grenoyers because they'd just won the Masters in Paris together. Yeah, right. Uh, but at that point, uh, Marcel was still playing singles. Yes. Um, so he wasn't committing to a full double schedule at the time. So I think that's what swayed his, his decision to play with me um, so I was very happy about that I got my number one pick and uh, yeah I think he's he's uh, he's all right with it now I think it's worked out and I think the temperament for both of you it seems to suit because he's always been a guy I mean I, I don't know if you knew this but back in his much younger days they called him big smooth because that's all always just that calm even temperament and I've seen both of you guys get fired up but it seems like both of you are able to help kind of settle things down when things do go negatively mm. yeah I mean I think it it helps that yeah in general we are pretty calm on court or we we it looks like we are at least <laughs> most of the time um, and that but that's also in some some ways a negative thing as well because obviously with with the doubles teams you have to be kind of or for most people to, to play well you have to be kind of high energy and getting getting yourself fired up and uh, just because Sometimes the points are shorter, so you need to raise your energy in between the points. Sometimes the, the speed of things can be quicker with the reaction volleys, and you need to be on it. Like, it could just be for one shot, one point. Obviously, you've got the sudden death juices, so you kind of have to have be playing with high energy throughout the match, and that's something that we weren't as good at or we struggled as a team because we were, are both kind of fairly chilled out, relaxed, um, especially off the court, and it's not naturally how we are on the court, so we had to try and... Um, improve that as a team to get ourselves yeah to have have more energy on court what did you do to do that um <laughs> to be honest we just tried to do it there wasn't any kind of magic Fake it till uh, you make it exactly yeah just um try to exaggerate it do it as much as you can try and go over the top and just yeah trying to do it as, as much as we could uh, and gradually it's sort of improved and now it feels a lot more natural for us to be to be like that it's almost like we kind of just flick a switch and and become a little bit different when we when we step onto the court i understand you've bought your first house uh congratulations on that is it is it set i mean is all, all the decorations done everything feels like home yeah yeah it's all uh all done now actually i think i'm still waiting on some curtains <laughs> in my, in my <laughs> those are important room. um but pretty much everything else is done but yeah I had to do everything from scratch um, I was actually lucky because it was actually my former partner Dave O'Hare um, and college teammate his current girlfriend is an interior designer so she's actually been helping me do it so I've been, I've been quite lucky I haven't actually 
had to do too much myself, which has been, been nice, especially being away all the time. Yeah, how much time have you actually spent there? Just a few weeks here and there. I mean, obviously this year we've been away even more than normal, getting to tournaments earlier for all the testing, etc., and not coming home as much. And then obviously during the summer, I'd usually be home a lot during the grass court season, but this year we were in the hotels and which was a shame. I mean, even during Wimbledon, my, I live in, in Wimbledon now, but had to stay in the hotel, which was 40 minutes away. Um, so that was that was a shame. But um, yeah, so it's just been kind of the odd week in between the tournaments that I've, that I've been back there. We've got to get you a little bit more settled because I, I imagine you, you need some things on the walls at this point. I haven't got any any photo well yeah not not much on the walls trophies anywhere got some trophies up okay but i mean that is pretty crucial you've gotten some nice there's a bit more more decorating to do joe salisbury thank you so much for your time appreciate it no worries thanks mike so that's about it it's almost hard just to sum up these incredible two weeks in a couple of sentences but we're going to try big thanks to joe salisbury for sitting down with you and again double congratulations to his double titles there congratulations to all the doubles champions here so incredible two weeks of tennis mike it was an absolute blast to be along with you for most of the ride yeah absolutely and i i keep saying to it i i'm talking to friends back home tennis fans and i just keep saying this has been an unreal two weeks every single day there was some new story there was some incredible drama and i can't remember a slam like this in my time covering tennis. It has just been such a fun couple of weeks. And yeah, listening to your calls, getting to call it myself over the last couple of weeks, it's been so much fun and I'm really honored to have been able to do it. It's been an honor to have you along for the ride and that will do it from the final Grand Slam of the year. The next live tennis on the 24-7 ATP Tennis Radio Channel will be our coverage of the BNP Paribas Open in Indian Wells from the 7th to the 17th of October. And be sure to join me right here next weekend for another edition of the podcast. We'll look ahead to the Labor Cup in Boston and bring you even more exclusive interviews from across the tour. I'm Brian Clark. Thanks for listening.